Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today for our 100th episode, Robert Kaplan, author of the new book, The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate and the Burden of Power. Uh, Robert, welcome back to Bookstuck. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Richard. And congratulations uh, on the book. So what is The Tragic Mind? The tragic mind is not what you think it is. Tragedy, as I define it, is uh, it's the common rule of life. It's not misfortune. It's not common misfortune. We go through that all the time. That's not what tragedy is. Tragedy is something exalted. It's about comprehension. It's about realizing uh, in a big event that you've done something wrong, but it's too late to affect the outcome. It's about how vast, however vast the landscape is, choices are often binary and narrow, as when a leader has to make a decision with very little evidence whether to invade or not to invade a country. Because, you know, a country is given to mysteries and ambiguities, and there's only 30, 40% of the evidence is, but you have to make a decision which will last for history. Tragedy is not about good versus evil. Um, evil actually plays very little role in my book. Tragedy is about choices of one good over another good that causes suffering. It's about incompatible choices. You can't do everything. You can only do one or two or three things. And by choosing one good over another good, someone is going to suffer somewhere. This is what the Greeks meant by tragedy. The Greeks knew that the world was imperfect, that it was, you know, deeply troubled, and yet it was beautiful at the same time. You know, one of my favorite Greek plays is Oedipus at Colonus, where Oedipus is broken down, he's blind, he's committed all these sins, though unknowingly, and the gods make an example of him to teach us all humility. And, and that's what tragedy is about. And quite a lot of this is about uh, opposites. I mean, you show us how Greek tragedy is built around the two opposite elements, Dionysus and Apollo, you use as your examples, intoxication versus limits uh, and structure, emotion versus reason. So these, these kind of conflicts between two kind of goods, as you describe them, is something that we've literally been thinking about for thousands of years. Yes, exactly. For instance, things like um, tyranny and anarchy have been written about by the great philosophers from Plato to Hobbes. There's nothing new there. It's a dismal subject. But to learn about them in real life, you know, experiences I did on the ground in Iraq, both during Saddam Hussein's rule and afterwards is life-changing. You know, this is really what the Greeks were about. And Dionysus, the, see, the Greeks were too rational not to realize the power of the irrational that lay on the other side of rationality. So what the Greeks feared most of all was chaos, anarchy. That's something that modern policy elites don't feel as much because in their life experience, they know all about tyranny because they read about dictators all the time in the news. And because they're involved in ideas, they hate dictators who, 
who oppress, you know, who won't allow the debate about ideas. But anarchy is something different. The people who've responded the best to my book have been fellow foreign correspondents who've experienced anarchy in Iraq, in sub-Saharan Africa, in other places, and know exactly what I'm talking about. Anarchy is beyond the personal experience system of most elites. And yet that's what the Greeks were most fearful of. They always wanted order above all, even though they realized, as did the founders of the American Revolution, that order itself has many problems. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you mention uh, Iraq there and that the book is framed um, by the war in Iraq uh, 20 years ago this year. You write movingly of, of suffering clinical depression after the war. Uh, you tell us, I had failed my test as a realist on the greatest issue of our time, no less. So, I mean, that's a harsh self-judgment that provides really the basis for this book. Yes. You know, had I not been to Iraq, Several times in the 1980s under Saddam, who knows, maybe I would not have supported the war, though I believe the WMD argument that most elites and intelligence services in the West were, were uh, promulgating at the time. Nevertheless, the tyranny of Saddam Hussein was not a normal tyranny. It wasn't a normal dictatorship. It was on a North Korean scale, is the way I would put it. And it was un-Arab, actually. It wasn't at all like the fellow Ba'athist regime next door in Syria, which was actually, and I'm using dismal relativistic terms here, the, the Syrian Ba'athists were not nearly as overbearing and cruel as in Iraq. So I said to myself, in Iraq, in the 80s, what can be worse than this? Nothing can be worse than this. Of course we have to topple him, because whatever results won't be worse than this. And then I went back to Iraq with the Marines in Al-Anbar and the First Battle of Fallujah, with uh, an army striker brigade in Mosul the year later. And I did experience a situation that was worse than what I experienced in the 80s. And when I interviewed Iraqis, they almost uniformly told me that as bad as Saddam was, it was better than what they had now. Yeah, I think that was it's one of the things that is so fascinating about the opening of the book that I mean, famously you've reported from war zones, including the Balkans. But as you say, nothing you had experienced was worse than Saddam. Uh, and that, I suppose, really was the background for you supporting the war, as you just said. But you say in the book that you felt that you'd let your emotions take over from your journalistic reasoning. Yes, I became too close to the story, in other words. And, you know, that's actually common among journalists often to become emotionally involved in supporting one side over the other. I mean, it's natural. It's almost impossible to be purely clinically objective in that sense. But though it framed the book, it started a process for me to, you know, to explore the ancient Greek tragedians, Shakespeare, and the moderns who were most Greek-like, such as Melville, Dostoevsky, and Albert Camus. So it, it launched a journey, and the book is the journey, essentially. Um, I deal with Iraq in the prologue for a few pages, I deal with it at the end, and there's a chapter somewhere in the middle where I compare the Iraq invasion to uh, Aeschylus' first play, The Persians. 
And I mean, talking of the Persians, uh, you quote a, a Persian philosopher, actually, that 100 years of anarchy is worth than 100 years of tyranny. That, that almost seems to get to the heart of the argument of the book. Why is that distinction so important to you? Look, obviously, a hundred years is not as bad as one year is an exaggeration. You know, it's a common exaggeration that we all make in conversation. But the point, the point was that anarchy is worse than tyranny. And that's because tyranny is some sort of order that is predictable that you can work around. Whereas anarchy is the battle of all against all, where there is no freedom because there is no safety for anybody. There is no freedom for anybody. So that's why the Greeks were obsessed with order. And as I said, so were the founders of the American Revolution. They realized that first you had to establish order, but next you had to go about making order less and less tyrannical. And that's the background of the Federalist Papers and a lot of their arguments. I mean, that works when you're talking about Hamilton and Jefferson. But can, can we take that too far? Hitler and Stalin, for example, provided order. But clearly their order is not always a virtue. Absolutely. And I mentioned Hitler and Stalin in the prologue, of, you know, of people who gave order itself a bad name. And we see this also in the dystopian fiction of Aldous Huxley and George Orwell, Brave New World, 1984, so that order itself became disparaged. But nevertheless, there's no alternative to order. And presumably that's how you arrive at the conclusion that removing Saddam was a good thing, but that it supplanted another good, you say, the semblance of order, even Saddam's rule was not the worst chaos that could befall his country. Yes. Saddam's rule was so extreme, it was like a species of chaos masquerading as tyranny, is the way I would put it. You know, it was the most extreme situation that I ever experienced as a journalist was Saddam's rule, except for when I experienced anarchy in the same place uh, a, a decade and a half later. I end the book with the realization, you know, that you have to think tragically in order to avoid tragedy. Now, that sounds like a contradiction, but it isn't, because it's about husbanding fear. You know, fear can be a good thing. Fear warns us of so many things. It's about worst-casing scenarios all the time, something policymakers do do or should do all the time, but at the same time, not to be immobilized by fear. Because if you're immobilized by worst case scenarios, you'll never do anything. And that was, of course, the problem with appeasement in 1938. Remember, when Chamberlain went to Munich, the 17 million or 20 million dead from World War I was only 20 years in the past. You know, all of us of a certain age know 20 years ago is like the snap of a finger. You can remember conversations, everything that happened. So Chamberlain was transfixed with what happened just 20 years ago, and he was an old man by then, and thus he committed a serious mistake. So it's a matter of a balance. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of the observations that you do make that tragedy is not despair. No, it's not despair at all. It's what makes the world beautiful. Um, Edith Hamilton, the great Greek classicist of America, 
in the early and mid 20th century. She was made an honorary citizen of Greece for her work, said that not to think tragically is to be sordid. That is tragedy that gives the world its mystery and beauty because the world is beautiful even if great mistakes are made. There's no resolution. You know, the Greeks were so wise, they realized there was no resolution to this. That tragedy, Edith Hamilton said, is the beauty of intolerable truths. I was reading a review of the new biography of George Kennan. Uh, the review was by Janan Ganache in the, in the Financial Times. And, and his argument was that there aren't enough reactionaries left these days, that uh, that lots of them opposed the war in Iraq, for example, so they have what he describes as occasional wisdom. But his main point was that it's got far more to do with them being at ease with ambiguity. Do you think that's right, that that's one of the things that we struggle with when we look at the world now, ambiguity? Absolutely. Foreign correspondents who've spent their years covering dozens of countries, and much less me than old-time correspondents at the New York Times, the Washington Post, people like Henry Cam and Jonathan Randall, they knew so many countries and they were at ease in ambiguity because they knew that each place was different, that there were actually relatively very few perfectly functioning liberal democracies and there were actually very few perfectly evil dictatorships. Uh, most places were in the gray zone. They were dictatorships that did provide a semblance of liberty and predictability in people's lives and, you know, and provided people with goods and services. And there were democracies that were disorderly, that were shambolic, that didn't work very well. Um, but this kind of foreign correspondence sensibility, you know, is for the most part lost among policy elites in the United States who tend to see the world ideologically. Uh, you know, there is no exception to democracy. Every country must be a democracy. They're not willing to settle for half measures or for gradual improvement. They, they have like a Manichaean dichotomy between democracy and dictatorship, which is not, the world is much messier than that. Yeah, and actually you quote Hegel's great insight that tragedy's greatness and frustration is that it's bound to present both sides of an argument as justified. I mean, that is by definition a complicated position to hold. Yeah. I think, you know, it may be that the reason Washington is more ideological than, say, London is because the United States is a great power. It's not Sweden. You know, I don't mean to disparage Sweden. But it's not a small power. It has to take stances on issues. Uh, it has to be involved everywhere in the world at some level. And therefore, the, the way it feels it can only organize its foreign policies through a few great ideas, you know, which gets it into trouble. Because, for instance, um, the Biden administration, which I think has handled Ukraine rather well, despite all the criticisms, it's got a balance right, um, nevertheless, is intent on, you know, on making countries democracies. And I think that's wrong. Remember when the Secretary of State at the time, James Baker III, organized a coalition of 34 countries against Saddam's Iraq after his invasion of Kuwait in 1991, many of those countries were autocracies, and Baker didn't mind at all. 
Yeah, you mentioned James Baker there, and, and in fact, you use George H.W. Bush almost as, as your exemplar of this particular ideal that, uh, as you describe it, that history counsels prudence. It's one of the points that you make towards the end of the book. You describe Bush as having character where and when it mattered. Is that the kind of presidency and decision-making that you're looking for? And what does it mean that he almost immediately lost an election? What, what does that tell us? I held up the elder Bush as an exemplar because he was not a great president. He was just a very competent and shrewd president in foreign policy. The things he accomplished were things that did not happen rather than things that did happen. He did not break diplomatic relations with China after Tiananmen Square, as many journalists and intellectuals were arguing he should do at the time. He did not take the war with Iraq in 1991 all the way to Baghdad, as some people were arguing. And when the Berlin Wall fell and one communist state after another fell in the Warsaw Pact in the autumn of 1989, he did not fly there and take a victory lap. He almost said nothing because he didn't want the Soviet Union to use military force. So he did not want to rub it in. And that's another thing that did not happen. Gorbachev let communism collapse without using military force. And part of the reason for that was in the restraint exercised by the elder Bush administration. So that's why I hold Bush up as an exemplar. You don't have to be a great president. There was no great war during his time. He was a one-term president. He was defeated mainly for domestic policy reasons. He was not a great domestic president as much as he was in foreign affairs. But yet that's the foreign policy that we should aim for in this very turbulent, unpredictable world. It's an intriguing element about politicians as well, that you make the point in the book that actually policymakers like Bush, Nixon is another example that you give, uh, those who've failed actually tend to be more interesting and more reflecting than the mediocre or even the successful, actually. Yes. People who've succeeded constantly and never failed are shallow. An example of that is the former prime minister of Britain, David Cameron, who was a success all his life and then created the Brexit dilemma. But people who have failed, who've been humiliated, can experience a depth that the ancient Greeks wrote about. And that's why, as I say in the book, one person I would have liked to have known was Richard Nixon after his impeachment. I mean, after he resigned from his presidency, because Nixon was so calculating and so wise in foreign policy. And then to be so humiliated and to realize his errors. And then in his post-presidency, he mainly stayed quiet or only commented or wrote books on the most serious subjects. You know, Nixon must have acquired some wisdom, kind of like Oedipus. How do we actually make those close calls? Is it what you were talking about before with those old school correspondents? Is it a sensibility? Is it a state of mind? I think it's a sensibility. You know, look again at the elder Bush. He was a genuine war hero in World War II, so he knew the danger of war. The first Gulf War seems like an obvious thing to eject the Iraqis from Kuwait. It seems to us obvious, but at the time it wasn't. 
uh, the vote in Congress almost went against it. It was considered a very risky thing to do. And he agonized over that decision because he knew what war was. He experienced war. I think people with more deeper life experience will tend to have a greater tragic sensibility and therefore will tend to make better decisions. But again, uh, you know, as Machiavelli, I believe, wrote, he said he could advise his prince in, uh, in virtue, by which he meant competence, expertise, things like that. But that was only 50% of it. The other 50% was fortuna, luck, or just, you know, having good fortune. Yeah, it, it is uh, one of the, the chilling moments uh, in the book when you're constantly kind of pointing out that uh, no person should ever uh, be described as lucky until they're dead. Yeah, that was the Greek insight. And that's really the story of Oedipus, because Oedipus is, um, you know, he's handsome, he's rich, he's the king. Everything's going perfect for him, you know, the perfect life. And then within 24 hours, he finds out that unwittingly he killed his father. He married his mother. He blinds himself from the humiliation of it and then is led off as a pauper. And, you know, what the Greeks were saying is that don't be arrogant because anything can befall somebody, no matter how charmed and wealthy and perfect and successful their life seems to be. Misfortune can always occur at any moment. And that's why I describe arrogance as a form of idiocy. And, you know, I guess that that's something that applies to all of us as individuals. But one of the main thrusts of the book is that it also applies to countries. It's also a way of thinking about policy. And I, and I was particularly struck by the point that you repeat over and over again and uh, you conclude the book with by saying that passion should not distort analysis, that analysis is what we need to make these decisions and to think about things as well as to feel about them. Yes, I feel sometimes that the media is too full of passion. And when leaders have to make wrenching decisions, what they require is analysis. And analysis also means, as I said earlier, not being immobilized by fear. It means husbanding fear and worst case scenarios without being immobilized by them. Because analysis itself is the art of making difficult choices. You know, decisions are by nature close calls. A decision where it's 90% clear you should do A rather than B is not really a decision. It's just common sense. But it's those close 55, 45 degree, you know, calls that are real decisions. And you said uh, at the top of the interview that sometimes it's choosing between uh, two goods, but actually sometimes it's between uh, an evil and a lesser evil too. Yes. There are better and lesser ways to fail is, you know, is the way that I would put it. Often it's what not happens that is the success, that things could always be worse. And I think we see that in what's going on in Ukraine. On the one hand, the administration has given tens of billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine. On the other hand, it has been slow in delivering the weapons. It has, you know, worked very hard not to let the war to expand to NATO countries. And it has worked very hard that there shouldn't be a use of any kind of WMD. And as a result, nobody is satisfied 
uh, with the Biden administration. But I think it's going forward in a very prudent, deliberate manner to avoid tragedy while not being immobilized by it. And so finally, I mean, does that suggest that there is a future for the tragic mind in American foreign policy? Yes, I think there is a great future because the world is smaller and smaller because of the way technology has shrunken geography, not eliminated geography, just made it all smaller. So the world is more anxious, more claustrophobic than it's ever been. And now we see the challenges of great power struggle, not just between Russia and Ukraine, but with China over Taiwan and in the Far East, we're dealing with high-end weaponry. We're dealing with the possibility of a military conflict that could be an extinction event for uh, financial markets. Whereas the Ukraine war, the war in Iraq, Libya did not, relatively speaking, did not affect financial markets so much. So the need for tragic thinking is going to increase. So the book is The Tragic Mind, Fear, Fate and the Burden of Power. It's written by my guest, Robert Kaplan, and published by Yale University Press. But for now, Robert, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 